So I know this is a um, potentially tricky uh, question to ask in the middle of a church service, uh, but did anyone leave their front door open this morning? <laughs> this is the time which you like, uh, maybe, if you're <laughs> leaving now. Um, you, I mean, you probably didn't because you wouldn't do that. Uh, we hear about communities elsewhere, possibly even still now in Scotland, but it seems that no one would leave there. I certainly would not leave my front door open um, on a daily basis. It's on a roundabout, loads of people go past. You just wouldn't do that, would you? Equally, you wouldn't go around telling people uh, the pins for your debit and credit cards, would you? Or if you had a bad memory, you think, well, I know what I'll do. I'll write the pin on the front of the card, and then I'll always know it. You wouldn't do that. And of course, no one would use the word password as a password, would they? No one, no one would do something like that. <laughs> Some things that make us vulnerable are obvious. And most of us would never intentionally do those kind of things. But there are other ways in which we are vulnerable which are more subtle, more common, and also more dangerous. As he ended his letter to the uh, Christians in the region of Ephesus, the church leader Paul gave them an encouraging warning about their vulnerability. It was a warning because the things he he was teaching them about are deadly serious. But it was also very encouraging because there was a certain place of safety for them. We're going to be looking at this uh, encouraging warning today. And as we do so, um, it will probably be, there'll be some things in in here that are quite unusual, um, particularly if you're from a Western culture. Uh, The Bible challenges every culture, uh, but there's some things in what we're going to look at today that uh, you might find a little unusual. But if you want to understand more about why our world contains such great evil, you'll find some answers here today. And if you want to avoid making mistakes that are far more serious than leaving your door open or your personal details exposed, then listen up as we read from Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, And having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. Maybe you felt a little awkward when our reading started mentioning the devil and this whole series of descriptions that Paul uses essentially of the same thing, the cosmic powers over the present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, the evil one. I imagine that if we did a survey of most people of Edinburgh, they would probably say that 
that kind of talk sounds a little superstitious, um, a little bit odd, and not really the kind of thing that they would have any interest in uh, or even think is necessarily true. But they'd probably also say, if you pushed them, that they did think that there was such a thing as evil. When something particularly horrible happens, like an awful crime against a child or, or someone vulnerable like that, sometimes you'll hear people say the judge is involved or the police or legal people, social workers, they'll say there, is, there was something here evil beyond the bounds of human behaviour. Even knowing that we are messed up people, this kind of thing seems worse than it somehow. And how do we explain it? People are involved, but there's something else going on. Deb and I were in uh, Prague this week on holiday, and one of the things that we did, we, uh, we visited the Jewish memorial to the Holocaust there. And the walls of a synagogue had been covered with the names of the 80,000 Czech Jews who were murdered by the Nazis during their occupation. And there was also an exhibition of art that Jewish children in one of the ghetto schools had done during the war. And just like at a, uh, an art gallery, uh, there were details of who the artist was and their dates of birth and when they died. And of course, these children, these artists died aged 11, 12, 13. It was human beings like you and me who did these things. But surely there was something more at work in this. A man named Romeo Dallaire, who was the force commander of the UN peacekeeping force in Rwanda during the genocide there in the 1990s, commented on his time there. He said, I shook hands with the devil. I have seen him. I have smelled him. And I have touched him. I know the devil exists. Now, if you're from another part of the world, you may be surprised that we're even wondering if there's some kind of malevolent, evil, spiritual force or forces in the world. You might have grown up in a context where that was just taken for granted. Everyone knew the reality of that in some way or other. But the West has been persuaded for quite a while now that what we see is all there is that we exist in, in a closed system, as it were. There's no spiritual reality or anything like that. The trouble with this is that it is totally inadequate for explaining both the best things that happen in life and also the worst. Often people are wanting to respond away from a kind of hysteria or fear-mongering or things like that. Well, the Bible doesn't act in that way at all, but it tells us very clearly that there is an unseen enemy among us who hates us and that Jesus is our only hope. And this is what we are looking at today. Because we believe the Bible is God's truth to us, because it matches actually so much of what we understand of the world around us, we believe that the devil and demonic forces exist. But by that same rule, that trusting in what God has said and focusing in on what God focuses in on, most of our time and attention as a church, as a community, as Christians, those of us who are Christians here, is spent focusing on God and on him and his goodness. And equally, we also see that our responsibility uh, for our sins lies primarily with each one of us. 
So we don't do a huge amount of teaching on the topic that we're looking at today that would often be described as spiritual warfare. But it is important, and so today's our opportunity to address it. The Oxford professor and writer C.S. Lewis, in the introduction to his brilliant book, The Screwtape Letters, puts it like this. So there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Because if, if you're a general in a war, what you'd most like to have happen is that the opposition don't think you're really there. If that can't happen, however, what you'd most like to happen is them to be absolutely fascinated about you, petrified of you, thinking about you all the time, and never think about themselves and their own tactics and their own part to play in the conflict. And so Lewis says either of those extremes are really unhelpful. And probably, to be honest, because we find most Christians living at either of those extremes, it's challenging for us to understand a middle ground, and so we prefer just to ignore it altogether. But we're looking at it today because it's important and because we don't want to be vulnerable to the things that are around us. One of the ways to understand the story that we're in, and, and this will, I think, make sense to you whether you're a Christian or you're not, is that there is a war happening that we are caught up with. It's not something distant like the Syrian conflict. It's right here. It's in Edinburgh. It's in your heart we're all aware that tensions exist. I find when I'm kind of sitting on a bus or even just walking down the street, I'm hearing people's conversations when they are agitated, when they are cross, when they're unhappy. It is almost always because of someone else. Very rarely do you have people getting really cross. You, know, you might, you, I mean, we find the weather annoying. Uh, it was warm this week, came here, it was cold. It was like, I'm annoyed with this. I can't get cross at the weather. But, I, but relational tensions are all around us all the time. Friends and family, neighbours and nations. Now we blame others for most of this. Say, I am fine, but what they are doing. But in our heart of hearts, we know that each of us is at least in part responsible for some of the conflict that we experience. Now God gives us a fuller insight into this by revealing that the tensions and the disagreements and the, 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 even the violence that we uh, either see or participate in is actually part of a greater cosmic battle. There is a rebel against God's authority who persuades us to believe him rather than God. He's typically known in the Bible uh, um, as Satan or the devil, which means accuser or slanderer. There are a few references to him in the Old Testament. There's a lot more in the New Testament, uh, particularly around Jesus and what he did and what he said. We aren't given the full details of where he came from. Uh, we don't have the whole picture of why he is like he is. But we are given enough to know and to be warned against him and his schemes. Now, just to say, most of the stuff in our Again, Western cultural um, imagination. We say the devil, you think, well, that's ridiculous because you're thinking of someone with red skin and horns and a, you know, a pointy trident and stuff like that. That's, there's none of that in the Bible. 
And what the caricature does is it serves to make the whole thing seem ridiculous in a way that we think, well, that can't, I mean, that's nonsense. It's not nonsense. That kind of misrepresentation is completely unhelpful. But Jesus speaks very clearly that this being exists. He's not alone. There are demonic forces uh, who are working with him. Now, exactly who does what and who influences whom and all this kind of stuff, um, we don't have that level of detail. I'm going to refer specifically to to him uh, throughout this as as the person involved, the being involved. um, And some of this will be, uh, I'll be describing situations that you might find yourself in. What I'm not saying when I do that is that the devil is particularly involved in you and that he has the time and energy to get around all of us and be around each of us individually. Because he doesn't. But it's complicated to keep saying the devil or a demon, we're not quite sure which. So you just, if we're happy to live with that abbreviation, that would be helpful. And even just this point is one important aspect of who he is and what he's like. He is not the equal of God or equivalent to him. This is not Star Wars. Yeah, there's a force, the same force, there's a good side and a dark side. Now you might think, it would be great to have lightsabers, and that's true, but apart from that, the Star Wars worldview is terrible news, because you don't know who will win out. This equally isn't like a sports contest or a war even, in which you've got essentially, this, well you do have the same kind of creature on either side of the conflict. Because in those situations, a bunch of amateurs can defeat the best team in the land. And a tiny, committed band of fighters uh, can defeat or frustrate the greatest military might in all of history. And so in all these kind of conflicts, there's a could go this way, could go that way. That's not what the Bible says. It's not actually what this world is about. It's not what's going on here. God alone is the creator. Everyone and everything else is created. And that includes the enemy. God alone is omnipresent, existing fully everywhere. God alone is omniscient, which means he's fully aware of everything. And only God is omnipotent, which means that he is almighty, he is undefeatable, he is able to do whatever he wants. The enemy is none of these things. He is mighty and he would love us to believe that he's greater than he actually is. But he is not equivalent or equal to God. Now the weapons he has are more powerful than anything that we can cope with on our own. We can summarise them as sin, the law and death. Now sin is very simply not doing what God wants us to do, what God's goodness has set before us. And we tend to think of sin, if, if Christian or not, you'll think of individual choices that you make. Be like, well, I had that choice and I could have done this, but I did that instead. I suppose that's sinful because that's what they say or whatever. And we think about it on that choice by choice, moment by moment basis. But sin is actually something much more powerful than that. Those choices that we make are because we are addicted and enslaved to this power that is greater than we are. 
It's addictive and you know this. The things that you do which you wish you didn't do but you go back and do them again for the most part because you are enticed by them somehow. Even the bitter aftertaste of it somehow becomes familiar and it's something that you go back to. Even when we know it will harm us or others, we still do it. Why is that? It's because it's addictive. It's because it's enslaving. By doing this, we take on chains that are far too heavy for us to free ourselves from. And this power is everywhere. It's in the heart of every person and it's in the systems and the networks that we build together as human beings. And so uh, one of the ways that Christian uh, teachers often try to describe the, the, the kind of conflict or the challenges that we face as Christians are in these three categories. The flesh, that's us. The world, that's the systems that we make. And the devil. The devil's work is to encourage us individually and corporately to live in this way of sin, to continually rebel against God, that we might become more and more hopeless, that we might cause more and more damage to others, and that we might be fully estranged from God. This weapon is so effective that all of us here know its impact on us. Even then, the goodness of God's holy law becomes a weapon to be used against us. It's like a stick to beat us with as God describes his goodness and all of us say, I haven't done that. I haven't even come close to that. In fact, the more you explained it to me, the more I went against it. And so even something that is good can be used against us. We repeatedly fail to meet our own standards, let alone God's. The law can't give us life and it seems instead to promise us death, which is the greatest weapon of all. Death is the price of our sins. It is the consequences of our rejection of the giver of life. Our disposition to sin, which we all have, encouraged by the enemy, makes death the destiny of all of us. I mean, logically speaking, its endless darkness renders everything that we do here utterly meaningless. And you find some philosophers will get to that point, like, well, if nothing else and there's just death, then life has absolutely no meaning whatsoever and everything is permissible. Death is our deepest fear and there's no escape from it. Against such mighty weapons wielded against us by beings more powerful than we are, what hope do we have in ourselves? Nothing. There is none. But there is someone far stronger than us and the enemy. 1 John 3 verse 8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Into a world opposed to him and full of hopelessness and darkness and defeat and death, Jesus appears. Jesus arrives 
And though he has all the power of God and countless angels that he could call at his command, he doesn't fight as we might expect someone to fight who is coming as a rescuer, who is coming as a conquering king. He explicitly rejects military options. At one point when he's being arrested, he said, I have, I have more than 12,000 times 12,000 angels, one of which would be enough for you to weep on the ground. I am not calling them. Because he's doing something deeper. He's doing something far more profound than just sheer force could achieve. His way of dealing with earthly enemies is to love them. Not do what everyone else does with their enemies. He loves them instead. And instead of trying to grasp power, instead of you know, bringing authority to himself, instead of uh, winning influence, he submits fully to God and the will of God which takes him to the cross. Philippians 2 says that he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And by what he does and how he does it, he triumphs over the weapons that defeat us. He was tempted his whole life long. Christians are familiar with this story about Jesus being tempted in the wilderness when he was hungry. But Luke's account of that ends. Jesus resists all those temptations and the account ends with the devil left him until he could find another opportune time. So he's always being tempted with hunger in the wilderness, uh, with fear and um, the night he was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, with agony when he was on the cross. Even on the cross, there's still a moment where people are saying, why don't you get yourself down? Because he could. So why don't you do this? Why don't you turn this stone into bread? Why don't you escape from out of this situation? Why don't you do all these things? He is tempted all through his life and yet never succumbs to sin. Never gives up on the point, never gives in to what he is being uh, tempted with. And so the law which condemns us commends him because it not only can't find fault in him, but by showing his perfection and his glory and his divinity, it exalts him. And so death can get him. Because the the price of sin isn't there to be paid by him. And the law, with its judgment and sin to follow, says, well, I find no fault in this one. He's perfect in every way. And so death, the great weapon, cannot touch him. And yet he, he dies. And so it thinks it's got him. And it hasn't. Because he rises again. To new life. He said, he said way before this happened in John chapter 10, he said, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one else has done this. So if you were here on Easter a few weeks ago, uh, Dan was giving an illustration uh, with uh, that weeble thing, uh, which when you knocked it, it came back and stood up again. Um, And that's kind of... It's an example of how even when you kind of try and get Jesus, you can't because he comes back up again. And as I was thinking about that, I was like, that's absolutely true. But there's something about what happens to these weapons when they are used against him in that moment. Even in the the hitting of it, even with the attack of them, and he goes down into the grave. Yet even in that moment, he is winning such a triumph over the enemy that the arm, the very weapon, is fractured and destroyed in the moment of him dying on a cross. Because we always think, oh, it's so sad that he died on a cross. It was awful, but it was victory. 
Because it was when all those weapons were proved to have not only no power over him, but that he had power over them. He turned them against the enemy. He turned them into tools of freedom for us. He does all of this not for himself, because he was fine beforehand, but for us. So that by putting our trust in him, giving our lives to him, taking hold of the outstretched arm that he puts towards each one of us with its nail marks in it. He says, if you take hold of this, I will take you out of your slavery to sin, of the condemnation of the law and of the fear of death. I'll take you out of those things. And he's not a reluctant saviour. You're not a nuisance to him. He doesn't do it with a wry or disappointed look in his eyes that I suppose I've got to help you out. Hebrews 12 says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. By the power of a perfect life, in accordance with God's law, through his death on the cross and his resurrection to eternal life, Jesus destroyed the works of the devil and won the war, bringing many enemies into God's family. If this is the case, why do Paul and all the other New Testament writers continue to use this language of warfare to describe our present circumstances? And why, in fact, would we probably do the same when it seems pretty obvious around us at the moment that Jesus doesn't seem all that victorious. Why does it still seem that the other side is winning? It's because we live in, a, in the gap between the victory that has been won and the peace that it brings. Jesus has won. He will return to earth to confirm this and to bring about the end of all things as we know it, at which point every knee will bow to him, whether it wants to or not, and the enemy's final defeat will occur. That moment is on its way. For now, however, as long as God graciously gives time for people to come to him by faith, by their choice, there will be opposition. The devil cannot stop the will of God to save someone. Nor can he stop the, the victorious return of Jesus. But he is not passive because of this. In fact, the very opposite. Revelation 12, 12 says, Woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. We remain for now in a war zone. It will help you, if you're a Christian, to think of your life in this way. We're in a war zone and we will be assaulted by the enemy. We will also continue to cause ourselves plenty of problems uh, without any help. And we will continue to exist and walk and work and live in a world in which people don't need a lot of encouragement to go against God. And so when we're saying all these things about uh, the devil's work and his involvement and stuff like that, you need to see it's a, it's a bigger picture than like, oh, he is tempting me to do this thing. It's a whole system. 
the flesh, the world, and the devil. But we're focusing on him today, and we're looking at how he causes us trouble. So let's go back to Ephesians 6. And um, Paul says that he has schemes. The devil has schemes, and they are not secret. He says in 2 Corinthians, so there's, there's nothing surprising about this. There's nothing unusual about it. So here's what Jesus tells us about him. It's really, I find this a fascinating quote. Most of the time you, when you read Jesus in the Gospels, you're like, man, he's, he's challenging, uh, he's loving, he's funny, uh, he's angry sometimes. But there's just something in this passage that is unlike, I think, anything else Jesus says in terms of the, the disgust and hatred in it. It's John 8:44. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. In John 10.10, Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And those are essentially his tactics. He has deception and he has accusation. Now, Christians are safe in God's hands. We belong to him and Jesus has won us and takes care of us. But we can still be lied to. Uh, We can still be persuaded to believe things that aren't true. And deception can often be a big part of that. Now, Satan isn't responsible for our sins. He can only encourage them. You're responsible for the things that you do. And he doesn't know us like God does. But by observation, he can see where we're vulnerable what we're vulnerable, who we're vulnerable to, when we are vulnerable. And he will remorselessly attack us at these points. Maybe it's a desperation to impress others. And that just is suggested to you all the time. Whenever you're feeling uncertain, it's like, why don't you try and impress on that kind of thing? Maybe it's uh, doubting your salvation. You're just in your mind. You're like, I'm not, is this true? Is this real? And those thoughts just get whipped up into a really unhelpful frenzy. Maybe it's um, things like watching pornography or dishonesty with money. Maybe it's laziness. Maybe it's despair. Different ones of us will have different combinations of these vulnerabilities. He has some awareness of them and that's where he will attack us. And so he'll tempt us. He'll, he'll, put, he'll put suggestions before us. Again, like I say, we don't always need help with this. Sometimes we're tempted all by ourselves. There'll be things that will put before us, things maybe that will pop into our minds. This, go for this. Why don't you go for this? And if you do go for it, if you succumb to the temptation, what immediately happens is accusation comes raining down on you. How can you be a real Christian if you've just done this? God cannot forgive you for that. You must stay away from church. They're all fine, but you, you have got to stay well clear of them. You don't tell anyone else about this, by the way. You, you know That would be the worst thing you could possibly do. All these kind of accusations, it's like a, a left hook, right hook. And he's been doing this forever, by which I mean from the beginning. If you look in the Genesis story, that's what he does. Uh, He entices and then he's able to accuse. Uh, There's nothing original about his tactics. There's there's a banality to them, uh, uh, frustrating even when you see it in others, although you always allow yourself to fall for it. How can you fall for something so obvious, so old, and yet we keep doing it? These deceptions hurt others. Uh, They ruin relationships. They compromise the credibility of the gospel and the church. And then the accusation that follows them rob Christians of their joy, of the freedom that they have and the confidence. And we're all vulnerable to these things. So how should we respond? 
Well, in Ephesians 6, Paul uses the image of a Roman soldier's armor to describe how a Christian can survive the assaults we face. Paul was a prisoner at that time. He was under house arrest or in a Roman prison. Either way, there were soldiers nearby. And so that's why the imagery was there for him. And people have spent a lot of time thinking about what the individual pieces on the armor that Paul lists means. And there's probably something in that. But Paul's real point, I think, is that every piece of armor is something that God has done for us. Every piece. He talks about the belt of truth, um, which truth comes from God. He talks about um, the breastplate of righteousness, which is something God gives to us. He talks about the gospel, which is obviously what God has done. He talks about faith, which is a gift from God. He talks about salvation, which is again the work of God. And he talks about the word of God, which comes from God. All these things come from God. And so that's the point of the armor, is that God is able to protect you. God's strength will enable you to stand. Whatever trouble or opposition you're facing, whether it's from yourself, whether it's from the world around you, whether it's from demonic forces, it is God's strength which will protect you. Remembering that this is the story, that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world, is the key to successfully fighting against evil. When we have this confidence and sufficiency, we're able to take our stand. He will push us, He will try to make us slip and fall, but we can stand against him. And that, by the way, is what Paul tells us to do. You think, we're talking about a conflict, so Paul's like, go out and win a great victory. He says, stand. Stay standing. Keep standing and then stand. He says it four times. And so this this is what it's like. So the enemy lies to us about, say, a temptation to sin. Say, this will be good for you. And we respond with the truth. No, it won't. It will poison me. It will poison others. And God's way is good even when it's hard. And we listen to other Christians who will teach us these truths. He tells us we're a terrible mess. He accuses us of being full of sin and disgusting in God's sight. We proclaim the gospel that Jesus has given us Jesus' own righteousness. And so when God looks at us, he sees his perfect son. He tries to make us anxious with many worries, some of which are legitimate, but he always inflates them and exaggerates. We stand firmly on the gospel of peace, that God really does rule and really is working all things for good. And we repeatedly gather with others, as Roman soldiers had, a sh- had shields and they defended themselves by getting, they called it like a turtle because they all gathered in, they were covered in their and others' shields. He tells us that God would never accept us with all our faults, our past faults, our present faults. We respond by celebrating our salvation, as Martin Luther did. Luther wrote, So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. We respond to his many temptations and accusations just as Jesus did in the wilderness by quoting God's word, a sword whose blade he cannot blunt. 
the kind of things to get into our heads and into our hearts. Like 1 John 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Romans 8 verse 1, there's now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Philippians 1. I am sure that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. John 10, 28. I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Psalm 23, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil for you are with me. These things individual verses, and the whole of the story of God's word. The things that we've looked at today for encouragement. He cannot stand against them. By using them, we can stand. He tries to persuade us to trust in ourselves, which leads to pride and or despair. And so we're to go to God again and again in prayer, which is a very many ways of saying, God, I need you. And God will give us the grace and the strength that we desperately need. And he willingly gives by his Holy Spirit. This is the dynamics that Paul describes in Ephesians 6. Someone once said that the Christian life isn't like a battle. It is a battle. And they're right. And the sooner we get it and expect to be living in conflict Actually, the easier our life will become because we won't be so confused by the things that happen that we don't like and that distress us and that are evil. We're like, well, what did you expect, the Bible would say to that. There is a spiritual enemy who hates us and wants to destroy us. Uh, We are weaker than him. All of us have succumbed to him. But Jesus is infinitely stronger. Jesus is the one we're to focus on if we're to stand for him. We don't need to spend a whole load of time Understanding all the different things that we've got enough. There's temptation and uh, deception, there's accusation. Okay, I know what he's going to be like. We will play a small role in this conflict. But as the Bible repeatedly says, the battle belongs to the Lord. We started as enemy collaborators. But Jesus came to rescue us and has brought us into his own family And so he will give us everything we need to stand with him until the day when every knee will bow to him and the victory celebrations begin that will never end. If you haven't already, today is the day for you to put your trust in Jesus. There is no other hope. And if you have already done this, well, be confident in him. Be warned of your vulnerabilities. And by the grace of God, with his immeasurable riches which he gives to us, stand. You will be vulnerable until the day you die. But God keeps watch over you and works his strength in your weakness. Let's stand. Jesus, if we had more time, we would sing songs of your glorious power and your wonderful triumph. And the great news is, one day there'll be no end of the meeting. They'll just be forever to enjoy you and to be absolutely staggered and amazed that you would reconcile 
those like us who were your enemies and bring us into your family. We thank you, Lord, that you have done this for us. Your life, your death, your resurrection, sin defeated, the law brought to bear in all its goodness and death destroyed. Oh, Lord God, give us, please, give us confidence in what you have done. Help us to be wise, neither fearful nor blasé, aware that we're living in a war zone, but confident that the victory's been won. Even right now, Holy Spirit, I want to ask you just to impress upon our hearts and our minds the truth of this. We'll go out of here in just a few moments and we'll see the world, and it won't look like it should do. It won't look like it will do uh, when you return. But for now, we see conflict all around us. Please give us grace to stand and to share this hope with others around us. Thank you, Lord. Though we're great sinners and there's a great enemy, yet you are a great saviour. Keep us trusting in you, we pray. Amen.